0: Yeah, one of the one of the theories about the name Frango is that it was um, Frederick and Nelson f- is the fur, and then Ango was capitalizing on the tango, which was a big deal in the 1920s. Right. There was one theory that it was at one time called the Franco, but they ditched that name. That was the know. Spanish version. <laughs> yes, exactly. They ditched it when the dictator came along.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS-9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're going to talk about food, specifically food that had its origins in the Northwest. And more specifically, an episode called Mossback Upon Further Review, The Short History of the Frango. If you haven't seen that video, We suggest you stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com, and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit.
0: Frango is a delicious chocolate candy. Uh, It was invented in Seattle in uh, 1918. This is chocolate before chocolate was like cool.
1: What was it about a little candy called frangos that made you want to do an episode about it? <laughs> I know that's so funny. S- seems
0: not the biggest thing about the northwest. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know whether I'm the I'm the proper judge of that. We, we so we did an episode on foods that became famous or originated in Seattle. And we looked at a bunch of them. Belgian waffles, Dutch babies, Uh, Chicken teriyaki is a fast food. You know, we we talk about these foods and and we have a plate of each one there and I'm eating it, you know. And, you know, the kind of eating you don't want your cardiologist to witness, (laughs) you know. That's really good. I didn't even put mustard or ketchup on this thing. Well, we've had a lot to eat. We need to top it off with a treat, Uh, a locally made treat, the frango. And at at the end of the episode, I say, well, you know, I think I'm going to top this off with a frango. And I pull out this little chocolate candy that has a wrapping on it. Now, I didn't even eat the candy. I just kind of held it up. And I got so much mail, like emails flooding in about frangos. And people wanted to know more about them. People wanted to know their history. People had memories of eating frangos. Um, the frango was developed by, it's a chocolate mint truffle. And it was developed by sort of one of the premier department stores of Seattle, Frederick and Nelson. Sure. And uh, it just had a place, I guess, in people's hearts and <laughs> stomachs. And um, people want to know who invented the Frango. So when we came up with the idea of occasionally doing episodes called upon further review, the idea was that we would elaborate on an episode where we had new information, we had to correct information. Oh, so you you got a lot of information from viewers about— frangos frangos yes and uh, i you know discovered there was a book written about frangos was a lot about frangos and it you know it also had a personal connection because i ate frangos all my childhood <laughs> and into my adult life i gave frangos i bought frangos so you know it was it was a local confection that was very famous purveyed through Frederick and nelson which had department stores elsewhere, and then later, after Fredericks folded, the Bon Marché sold frangos, and then when Macy's bought the Bon, they sold frangos, but, you know, frangos are no longer available in a a local department store. That's gone away. it, It strikes me that frangos was just part of this
1: nostalgia about the department store experience. And the department store, for me, was a destination. It was a downtown destination, and it had everything. It was sort of a minor Disneyland. And so that's—so
0: the Frango is couched in those memories. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, you know, you think about those old department stores, and not only did they sell everything, and and multi-floors of, you know, clothes, toys— Fredericks had a lending library, but it all—they also had restaurants in them, uh, tea rooms. This is where the frango developed as a a frozen dessert in the Frederick and Nelson Tea Room, which is the thing where ladies went to be seen and to see fashion shows, and it was, you know, a, a very social thing. And so, and and to me, a lot of the stories that we do. Because they're Northwest stories, Uh, you know, my family has been here a while. You know, I have local um, connections with them. And when I think of Frederick and Nelson, I think of my grandmother, my granny. Really? Um, Yeah. Did she take you to Frederick and Nelson's or was it part of her life? Oh, yes. It was a huge part of her life. Um, When I came along, uh, she had been widowed. Her husband had... Uh, you know, a fair amount of money. She was comfortable. They had built a a little home in the Mount Baker neighborhood. And she was, uh, you know, from a Scottish fishing village and, you know, had emigrated. And she loved to go shopping. And she didn't drive, so she would walk across the street, get on the 10 Mount Baker bus, take it downtown, get out at the department stores. And if, when I think about every holiday... Every Christmas, Um, you know, she had the tea cart that would be laden, and everything was from Frederick's, Uh, little mint cookies, um, uh, nuts, bowls of nuts. Um, Sometimes uh, we kids uh, would be given uh, the Frederick and Nelson had chicken pot pies that came in these little ceramic bowls. And then after you ate the pie and washed the bowl, your mother would keep it, and it would be a cereal bowl. So all of our cereal bowls were these Frederick and Nelson green uh, chicken pot pie <laughs> bowls. But for her, you know, she, you know, she had friends and social contacts and everything. But Frederick and Nelson, I mean, I think she went there almost every day. I think she would, you know, have her big purse and she would get on the bus and go down there and come home with something. Well, I can understand for a lot of people who weren't
1: working every day would really enjoy this sort of retail church, as it were, that that just had so many experiences inside it. Um, Certainly during the holidays when everything was decked out. I remember going to the Crescent in Spokane, which was Spokane's equivalent of Frederick and Nelson's, so much so I thought it was owned by Frederick and Nelson's. But you'd go <laughs> there, there were cafes, there were displays, there was a lot of shopping. You could go to any floor and find things and it was a place you could go to dinner to see things and be seen and feel part of the city. So I can imagine that well.
0: Yeah. Was there a doorman? I'm sure there was. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that Frederick Nelson was a big deal was there, there was a uniform doorman. You know, so if you drove up in your cab or your car, you were needed help loading all your packages. I think there was an, a sense of of urbaneness or, you know, that the department store was sophistication itself. It was service. It was... Um, and it, and it wasn't all high-end. That's the thing. I mean, you could buy a box of Frangos for 50 cents um, in the old days. I mean, they advertised it. So it was accessible to a lot of people, but everybody—it was in that era where people dressed up to go downtown. You know, you, your mother made you put on a jacket or a tie or a—and if you were going to someplace like Frederick and Nelson, you, you were sort of expected to look proper uh, and— uh, I think for Seattle, which was you know had the reputation of being well, Skid Road was, you know, something people knew about. We were a seaport. We were provincial, stuck up in the corner. You know, this this was our New York. You know, our little bit of elegance. And um, you know, they 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 manufactured their own candies. This wasn't stuff they were selling from uh, other vendors. Uh, Their food, they had kind of a deli area and a bakery, and then they had a candy factory right there in the building. So it was all
1: manufactured,
0: all made right in the Frederick and Nelson building. In the building, yeah, in the building. And, um, you know, and they made a bunch of different flavors of these frangos. But a frango, if you didn't know what to get somebody for their birthday, or even if you did— uh, or for Christmas, or as a going away present, or as a thank you. What did you do? You bought a kind of, you know, a, a, a box, a little box of these chocolate mints.
1: What was it about Frango, the candy itself, the taste? The What was it about it that captured so many
0: people's appetites. Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, it was basically chocolate mint, right? And they they manufactured eventually they manufactured variants of it e- very early on. And so the the mistake I made in that little short Frango segment was I said they were invented in 1918. That's not true. They didn't the candy didn't really show up until about 1927, 1928. But the name Frango somebody trademarked it back in like nineteen eighteen but I think these these truffles they you know the chocolate was kind of exotic, and they they were using peppermint oil from Oregon, <laughs> so there was kind of a local you know thing to it and they they were just kind of enormously delicious and then they began experimenting with flavors, so they had a rum flavored one they had a they had a um, oh, what was a hazelnut one. You know, they they, they tried different flavors, and then as time went on, they added even more. They had an ebony frango, which was milk chocolate on the uh, the inside and dark chocolate on the outside. And so they always kind of kept you coming back for sort of the latest iteration. You know, were they better than, you know, than other candies? I'm not, I mean, you know, tastes vary. I mean, we, there's certainly... Nowadays, Seattle has no shortage of candy companies.
1: But it's so unusual, I think, for a particular candy or brand to be so attracted to so many people. I mean, you wouldn't find anybody who does not like Frango's.
0: Yeah, apparently, you know.
1: Which I don't think you could say about some other (laughs) candies that that we will talk about (laughs) coming up. That's true. That's true was the, was the name frango it, it seems like it's an attempt at at uh, an acronym where did the name came from come from or was it that's, yeah that's a subject of pure marketing debate. and
0: advertising effort well there w- there was a frozen dessert called a frango before frederick and nelson was serving it and the flavor was usually orange or maple and it was made with very high fat content, like 30-plus percent fat content. And kind of a—it wasn't really ice cream, and uh, but it was more crystalline than that. And people said that it would stick to the roof of your mouth. Now, later, Frango made ice cream that was—I remember it as just really good ice cream. So that was sort of the original confection that had the name Frango. And, and Frederick and Nelson served, I guess, really good Frango— in the tea room, and then they hired a guy to run their candy shop, and he's the one that made the truffle, and they switched the name to the truffle.
1: Yeah, just F-R-A-N, sort of like Frederick Ann.
0: Yeah, one of the one of the theories about the name Frango is that it was um, Frederick and Nelson f- is the fur, and then Ango was capitalizing on the tango which was a big deal in the 1920s. Right. Um and I you know there was one theory that it was at one time called the Franco but they ditched that name That was the Spanish know. version. <laughs> yes exactly. They ditched it when the dictator came along. I think it was just adopting a pre-existing dessert name for their candy and they apparently hired a guy Um, whose name escapes me at the moment, but they hired a guy who was a brilliant promoter. So in Frederick and Nelson's sort of heyday in the sort of 20s and 30s and 40s, this guy just promoted the heck out of the Frango. The other thing that happened was Frederick and Nelson ended up getting bought by Marshall Field in Chicago and they liked the frango so much and saw how popular it was that they have their own version in Chicago. So if you grew up in Chicago and your mom or her dad were shopping at Marshall Field, you're familiar with the frango. But their frangos, you know, are slightly smaller and they're not individually wrapped and they don't come in the kind of octagonal box right. that became so well known here. Yeah, right. everybody remembers the, the shape of the box. Um so where does one get frangos now? Well, you know, I mean, up until a few years ago, you could go down to Macy's downtown, which was in the old Barn Marche building, and they actually had a whole frango shop right there. On, But, um, but they left town. They went out of business. And um, so somebody else bought the right to sell frangos. I think you can find them online. You can find the Marshall Field ones online. They're as close as you can get to the old, you know, the old Frederick and Nelson frango, if you really, you know, you really want one.
1: So frangos were one thing that everybody remembers. What about other sort of regional sweet memories, food, food memories? What, what was another one? Now, of course, applets and cutlets comes to mind. Yes. But that's sort of a – for some reason, it, it's – for me, it seems like really
0: hyped, but nobody really liked it that much. Yeah. Well, it's funny because um, a couple – a few years ago, there was um, – it was announced that applets and cutlets they're produced in Kashmir, Washington, and if you go there, there's actually like an Applets and Cotlets way, you know, you've got a street. And there's a little factory there where they make them, and you can tour it, and you can I've buy. Yeah, and and I've, I've been there as well. And, um, you know, they're sort of a Turkish delight-style confection, powdered sugar over a kind of jellied and a nut-flavored thing. And, uh, yeah, I used to hate them. Uh, <laughs> my grandmother was always had. You know, on, on on her tea cart with all the other treats, there was always a a, a plate with with applets and cotlets, and uh, usually they were stale. And uh, I think it was one of those things where it was kind of like a gift that you could give. It was, you know, and um, but when when the the applets and cotlets was threatened with closure, people went nuts. People were really upset. There were big articles about it. And eventually somebody came along and saved applets and cotlets. So it's still going and you can still get them whether you like them or not. And they made grapelets, and they also made chocolate-covered applets and cutlets. <laughs> you know, every time I have written in the newsletter or anything uh, mentioning a dessert, it, it just is like pushing the send me mail button. The subject of Nanaimo bars came up recently in my newsletter. And I was deluged with memories of Nanaimo bars, people both on this side of the border, Canadian side of the border. Um, now, Nanaimo bars, not everybody knows what they are, but they're basically um, it sort of has a baked crust, but it's a sort of a refrigerator fudge. Uh, you have, a, you have a, a crust on the bottom uh, you have custard in the middle and then a layer of thick chocolate, dark chocolate on top. And they apparently originated in the town of Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. And um, I guess the earliest references to them are in the early 1950s. And, they're, you know, like anything else, they're desserts that are really similar that other places make. But Nanaimo bars, I think they became very famous in Canada people... You know, they were sort of like the Frangos of of British Columbia. Um, Souvenir food. It, yes, exactly. But also, you know, Nanaimo is one of those places that's on the on the stop if you're cruising the Canadian San Juans, if you're going to Alaska, if you know, and uh, if you know people from Seattle who have a sailboat and go up, you know, that kind of thing. Um, They're introduced to this Nanaimo bar when they get up there, and then they come back. It's easy to make. It's the kind of thing you could find the recipe in Sunset Magazine or the Seattle Times or whatever. But people, um, you know, it turns out they have huge debates about what the best Nanaimo bar is, um, what kind of custard to use. People feel very strongly. But there's a lot of, like, regional identity tied up in it.
1: Well, I found whenever anyone... I don't think I've ever had one, but when anybody mentions Nanaimo bars, the reaction of most people is, mmm, <laughs> just, you know,
0: real, real gusto. They're really good. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, they're really good. I had a gluten-free Nanaimo bar, or I, I didn't, I just had a bite of one, and it was fabulous, you know. So, uh, you know, I get it. What about almond roca? Is that an exclusively Northwest That's local. Tacoma, Brown and Haley. There's even a a little, you know, shop, funny little shop there in Tacoma, near the Tacoma Dome that sells. That's the Amon Roca outlet. And, um, oh, my mother was a huge Amon Roca fan. I mean, every Christmas, it was the surefire. She expected it, you know. And she liked the tin Of course,
1: had a kind of a Victorian presentation in a tin. Yeah, they're wrapped
0: in gold foil. Right. And apparently one of their secrets to success, I heard this back like in the 80s, was um, the Asian market, that the colors of pink and gold, which are sort of the colors of the tin, were considered auspicious in parts of Asia. Uh, and they became a kind of go-to gift for occasions. And so they were shipping and selling tons of almond roca overseas. And, um, and of course, you know, you can get them in Bartels or any, any place now. But, um, yeah, they represent this kind of, you know, little, little bit of elegance. Uh, in a candy tin that just, you know, people, I guess, once you get addicted to them, you just never want to see them go away. What's the one food
1: that took off in the Northwest that is sort of the least likely suspect?
0: Oh, I, (laughs) well, I think, I think the story of chicken teriyaki as a fast food is sort of the one of, one of the most kind of unexpected things.
1: That seems very unexpected.
0: Right. Yeah. uh, And there's been a bunch of research done on it. A lot of writers have written about this article in the New York Times and other places. And, you know, uh, a man named Toshi Kasahara came up with, not far from where we're recording this near Seattle Center, opened a teriyaki place. And, you know. I mean, sweet sauces like teriyaki sauce have existed, you know, for a long time. But he was the one that sort of put together the combination of fast food, which was, you know, grilled chicken, teriyaki sauce, a little green salad, and a big pile of rice in, in your, you know, styrofoam uh, container. And it, it turned into a big Seattle thing. That so it wasn't the actual— recipe, it was how he packaged it. He packaged it as nutritious, I guess, fast food. Yes. In a clamshell. Yes. And, and you know, his, his restaurant became very popular. He opened other teriyaki places. Other people imitated it. And it just became this sort of go-to fast food and it spread to other cities. But Seattle was sort of the main place where for time, and we're talking in the 70s and 80s, you didn't you didn't go to McDonald's drive-in. You went to Atoshi's. Teriyaki was everywhere. It was more prevalent than than uh, your traditional fast food places in terms of it's in small neighborhoods, it's in big neighborhoods, it's on Aurora, it's you know, they're everywhere. Very cheap to get into as a business and of course most strip malls have parking. You know, so you just zip in, get your get your takeout and and run in it. It's uh, yeah, super fast. And so we, at the, at, when I was at Seattle Weekly, where I was editor for a while, um, we had a writer who did an article on the kind of history of chicken teriyaki, which is one one of the places that surfaced a lot of this story. And then later, I was quoted in the in the New York Times, saying something about this about chicken teriyaki, and I got a call from Anthony Bourdain's producer, and they said. Uh, We're coming out to Seattle, and we're interested in um, doing a segment on chicken teriyaki. And would you be willing to be interviewed for that? So we come out and talk to you about that. And so um, we got together at a teriyaki place in Fremont. It's so interesting because, you know, it used to be chicken teriyaki and Toshi's was the kind of, you know, cookie cutter, the model for it. And, of course, nowadays... A lot of the places, you know, they serve Chinese food. They serve Philippine food. They serve um, Mexican food. I mean, you can find, like, every combination, and they're everywhere. And we talked about chicken teriyaki. They decided not to do a t- chicken teriyaki segment, um, but we, en- I, we ended up doing a segment about— um, <laughs> we ended up doing a segment that turned out to be sort of about serial killers, <laughs> but we did it at a Taylor Shellfish, where you know we did the classic thing where we feasted on a platter of Dungeness crab, oysters, and you know all, all the uh, you know the glorious uh, seafood, and, and talked about these dark topics that Anthony Bourdain wanted to talk about. Well, speaking about seafood.
1: One delicious bit that I know is exclusive to our area is the Olympia oyster.
0: Yes, right. You know, we did a, we did a whole episode on on Olympia oysters because, well, one, you know, first of all, it's the only native oyster to this region. That's right. You know, and up Olymp- and down the the That's west right. coast. That's so, right. So, and it's tiny. Yeah.
1: It's very small, but every other oyster you see is. Japanese. That's right, from
0: somewhere else. Yeah. And, you know, and and I mean, the oyster business is huge here. Originally, it was huge based on these native oysters that, you know, had been here growing for years. And of course, indigenous people had been eating eating them for a long time. But when, you know, settlers got here, it was, uh, you know, a really terrific food. You know, that old slogan, when the tide is out, the table is set. Well, You know, when the tide went out, you'd see these huge oyster beds full of these tiny little oysters. Some of them weren't so tiny because I went out to the Burke Museum and found an an Olympia oyster shell. And it, you know, it it filled the palm of my hand. Most of them are sort of maybe the size of a quarter. Right, and kind of roundish,
1: not oblong.
0: Yes, and this one was roundish, but it was bigger than a dollar coin, you know. Much and they're, they're very slow growing, right? Yes, very slow growing, and um, and they're delicious. And people, there was a huge uh, appetite for them. Um, the shellfish industry was like one of even before timber. Exporting shellfish, and uh, was a really big deal. And so we, they were exporting these shellfish sending them to San Francisco where they could arrive by boat and still be fresh, still be alive in the shell. Now Olympia oysters are, um, you know, there's some places that, ra- that raise them. And I just heard recently from a company out in, near oyster in Oysterville that is, um, growing Olympia oysters. They're not seeding them, but they're, they're, growing them in a natural bed. They're, they're <laughs> free range oysters. They're wild Olympia oysters out there. And I thought that was super intriguing. What is it about food
1: that culturally that informs our, our history?
0: You know, I think this was something I think Anthony Bourdain, going back to him, he understood, which was food is place. You know, food and place. And if you want to get to know a culture, you go eat their food, and you learn a lot right there. And place and food and history are just so intertwined. It's this fundamental human activity. And and in a place like the Pacific Northwest— were food rich. You know, you had this amazing abundance of seafood that was accessible. You had fertile lowlands where farms and dairy could flourish. Apple orchards, uh, fruit, berries. You know, there's nothing more symbolic of the region than salmon, you know, and it's because Uh, of the food it provided, the way it sustained cultures and sustained people for millennia. And we mentioned this in the episode uh, about the frango. There's the whole connection between taste and memory that, you know, if you see a landmark, it can spark, you know, a, 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 a thousand words of memory um, if you eat a Madeline, you know, or you eat something that you grew up eating but haven't eaten for a while, or you you remember an association between food and family and memory, these things are just very powerful, and they're very they're kind of a a kind of connective tissue. Now, in the previous episode. I made the mistake of not eating a frango, but this time we're not going to make that same mistake. So, Stephen.
1: Somebody's already been in there.
0: (laughs) Unlock the memory banks.
1: Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its seventh season. The new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS-9, every week through May. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.